Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who governs all things in heaven and on earth, mercifully hear the prayers of your people and grant us your peace through all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, we didn't quite get to where I wanted to last time, uh, so we're going to finish that up just talking about the prodigal son, if you remember. That's where we were, Luke 15, talking about the prodigal son, and I had told you that it's more than uh, one prodigal son, and that in one way or another, every character in that parable is prodigal because everyone in that, car- in that parable goes against what they ought to have done. The father ought not to have acquiesced to his son's demand, which was what? Yes, but what is, what's the meaning of that? Yeah, drop dead. Drop dead, Dad. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And the dad does. He gives him his inheritance, which is more than just saying he gave him the money and the stuff. It's also saying that the son asked his father to drop dead, and the father did. He did drop dead for his son. The son is prodigal because he asks his father to drop dead, and because he squanders his inheritance. And uh, the father, again, is parable because when the, or prodigal because when the son comes back, he does what? He runs out to him, yes. No, no man of stature does that. But this man does, this father does. He runs out to meet his son. He throws a feast for his son. And the other brother is prodigal, Why? The other brother is prodigal because he's not happy that his own brother has come home. He should have been like his father, rejoicing uh, at the fact that the brother who had gone away has returned. But instead he was jealous. Why does he get a party and I never get a party? I've, I've done everything you asked me to do. And this is a common theme that you'll see throughout uh, Jesus' parables in the Gospels is this sense of some people getting more, some people getting less, and the people who got less should be happy that some of the people got more. Uh, A couple examples are the workers who wait around for someone to come hire them, and the master of the vineyard comes out at uh, the beginning of the day, early morning, mid-morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, and then right before, an hour before they're supposed to be done working for the day, And he pays everyone exactly the same amount. People who worked for one hour made the same as the people who worked for 12. Uh, It's not fair, I know. And the people who worked for 12 hours uh, are the bad guys in that. They accuse the the, uh, owner of the vineyard of being unfair. And he says, you agreed at the beginning of the day for this. This is what you, you, you signed the contract to work for this much. Uh, it's my money. If I want to give to these people the same as I give to you, shouldn't that be my decision to do so? The other, uh, the other one is 
the parables in this same chapter of Luke, actually, with the prodigal son, Luke 15, of the uh, good shepherd who leaves behind 99 perfectly good sheep to wander into the wilderness and find one. What kind of a shepherd does that? Not one that you want to hire. That's ridiculous. Any shepherd worth his salt says, well, to heck with it. That one's on his own. Uh, I'll cut my losses and just take better care of the 99 that I have and still try to turn a profit. I'm just down one sheep. We'll try and minimize the damage. Uh, but this one doesn't. He goes after them. It doesn't make any sense. And there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Uh, the same with the woman who finds a penny. She sweeps her house and finds her lost penny. And what does she do to celebrate that she found this nice shiny copper penny? Well, she throws a $3,000 block party to celebrate with all of her neighbors about how she found that one penny. Now, does that make any kind of sense at all? Certainly not. Now, I bet you you'd like going to a $3,000 block party to celebrate, and no matter what it was about, you can go and have a good time. But the, the point is, nobody does that. It's a penny. You can find a penny anytime you go through your couch cushions. The fact that she would spend more on celebrating that penny than the penny itself was worth is the point. That is the way that the Lord thinks of you. That's the way the Father thinks of his Son. I don't care about all the riches in the world. I only care about having my Son. And this is why this parable is so important for the discussion of confession and absolution. Uh, Because the way that the prodigal father treats his son is the way that God treats you. This is a picture of how the Lord loves you and how he wants to interact with you and how he does interact with you through the church. Uh, it's, a re- it's an image of the relationship with you. What, and uh, in more ways than one, actually, because how often are you the workers who've only worked for one hour? How often, or for the workers who worked for 12 hours, excuse me, and who are angry about the ones who only worked for one? How often are you that one son that said, well, why does he get the special treatment? I never did anything wrong even. I never even got praised for what I did. Uh, It speaks to the heart of every matter surrounding confession and absolution. So there are a few more things that we need to talk about just as it relates to this parable. The first thing is that confession is painful. Uh, does the son want to go and confess to his father? No, it's, it, he comes to that realization painfully. He is slopping pigs, which is bad for a good Jewish boy. He wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating because he himself is starving. He's not in a good position. He's not well off. He's brought to his knees and he's crippled by the realization of what he's done. So, uh, confession is painful, but the after party is worth the pain. That's the lesson, lesson one here. Confession is painful, but the after party is worth the pain. Because you get a fatted calf at the end of it. And really, every time. You want to come to confession? Every time you come to confession, you get a fatted calf. It's really nice, actually. We have a nice party up there at the altar. <laughs> Not something to be scared of, but it is painful. Um, But the thing is, pain is often a very good teacher. How many of you were spanked when you were growing up? Yeah, I'm looking at you three. (laughs) I was, and guess what? It was a good teacher. Uh, You avoided doing the things, or you were supposed to avoid doing the things that you knew you weren't supposed to be doing, 
because you knew that there was the threat that you were going to have to go get the switch or that you were going to have to go get the spanking belt that hung up on the hook. That's what we had to do. One of my dad's old belts was the spanking belt. And not only did we get spanked, my parents would make us go all the way upstairs into their closet and take that belt down ourselves and carry it to them and hand it to them. Here you go. <laughs> like the Lady of the Lake with the sword for King Arthur. Here you go. Here's your weapon. Please use it. Now, pain is a good teacher. And in this case, pain teaches the... Uh, Pain teaches this prodigal son a little bit of a lesson. There's a really great quote here that I want to share with you from Mark Twain from the book Tom Sawyer Abroad. And this is what I want you to think about in terms of confession and absolution, the pain of sin, what it does to you, and the realization that I've learned a lesson from the pain of sin. I need to go and confess it and get rid of it. The person that had took a bull by the tail once had learned 60 or 70 times as much as a person that hadn't. And the person that started in to carry a cat home by the tail was getting knowledge that was always going to be useful to him and weren't ever going to grow dim or doubtful. <laughs> you try to carry a cat home by the tail someday, you tell me how it works out, but you're going to learn a lesson one way or the other. Okay? Pain is a good teacher. It, pain isn't always bad, because sometimes pain points you to what is good. And in this case, the guilt and shame of the Christian heart seeing and recognizing sin in itself, coming to that realization, that's a good thing. And you should, that pain is something that drives you as a Christian. That discomfort is something that drives you as a Christian. That feeling of guilt is something that drives you as a Christian to confession. It drives you back to your father because you know deep down that when you go back, your father will accept you back. In fact, not only will he accept you, but he'll do so uh, unbegrudgingly with arms wide open. He'll give you the ring and the cloak and the, the nice shoes and a fatted calf. Okay? The, uh, the father's love is not something that is earned, which is a lesson that the boy in the parable learns. Uh, I've, remember, it, the good confession versus the bad confession. I have not lived like your son. I don't deserve to be called your son. Good confessions. Yes, absolutely true. You haven't lived like my son and you don't deserve to be called my son. But the father cuts him off. You know what the son's going to say because he rehearsed it for you to hear. But the father doesn't let him finish because why does it matter? When the son comes back, does he get to say, don't treat me like your son anymore? No, because the fact that he is a son is not something he's earned. That's the nature of the beast. You don't get to decide to be a son or a daughter. And likewise, you don't get to determine how somebody else loves you. Instead, what you do get to do is appreciate the fact that the love is given and you receive the love the way it is. <clears throat> so what this means for you is that you don't get to dictate how God loves you. You don't get to dictate to God how he should interact with you. Oh, please don't come near me. I'm a sinner. Well, you don't get to tell me to do that. I'm going to come near you because you're a sinner. I'm going to come near you because if I don't come near you, nothing good is going to happen to you. So you don't get to tell God how to love you. Uh, the late Professor Norman Nagel, one of his uh, little sayings that I really like is this, you are nothing but given to. All of theology is gift, and you are nothing if not given to. All you are is someone who receives something from another. The love and all that flows from that love of another. 
And confession and absolution is all about this. God loves recklessly. He's crazy. You you read a lot of those parables and they're dumb. The way that the sower scatters his seed everywhere. You're a farmer, aren't you, Michael? Would you take that seed that you had to buy and throw it into places where you knew it wasn't going to grow? No, because it's a waste of money and seed, isn't it? But this guy does. He throws it everywhere. He doesn't care where that seed goes and he doesn't care how much of a loss he takes on his crop or on his cash. Why? Because he has love. Love makes him crazy and reckless and irrational. And that's the point. Because that's how God works for you. God loves you so much, he's willing to be crazy and irrational and reckless for you. And that's actually a really nice thing, to be able to receive a love that is that powerful and strong. The father meets the demands of the son out of love. He drops dead for his son because he loves his son. Um, So this is now, that's really what I wanted to get at Um, boiling down that parable. So here's where we are now. What is confession? Where does it take place? This idea of confession and absolution. To whom do you confess? And uh, who is the one who is called to forgive? And those are two very big and important questions, and they're harder to answer than it seems. But here's the best way to look at it. Um, There's two planes for confession and absolution. There is the vertical plane, which is this way, the vertical plane, which is between you and... Yes. (laughs) Between you and God. That's the vertical plane, okay? So, um, vertical plane is about acquittal. The acquittal of sins. Brian, if I sin against you, which if I haven't already, I can guarantee you I, I will one day. So if I sin against you, and I come and I confess my sins to you, you do not have the power to acquit me of my sins. You are not a judge, you are not a lawyer, you are not a jury. You can't do that. So the vertical plane is important because that's where the acquittal happens. Uh, That is confession to God, and it is seeking after the mercy of God. Uh, And the result of that is that sin is obliterated. It is just obliterated, blasted away. doesn't exist anymore. The other plane is the horizontal plane. And this, Brian, this is the plane where you and I interact. Because I sinned against you, and so I confess to the Lord that I have sinned against you. And the Lord acquits me and offers me forgiveness. But I still need to make things right with you. So I go to you and I confess to you, Brian, I'm very sorry for what I did to you. Please forgive me. And you say, I forgive you. And then we go and have a party. (laughs) Okay? The horizontal plane is confession among peers among everybody else. Uh, This happens just as often as confession to the Lord because you are sliding your peers often. The good that I would do is not what I do and the evil that I don't want to do is the very thing that I do. 
Okay. So you're, sl you're slight your peers often. This is uh, the, the idea of debt and debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who uh, are indebted to us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in the Lord's Prayer. Okay? So um, the result of this is not acquittal because only the Lord can acquit you. Only the Lord can remove your guilt. Only the Lord can remove your sins. Brian, you can't remove my sin. And you can't go back in time and erase it and make it so it didn't happen either. But when you can, let me know because I'll be interested in that. Okay? Um, only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord can obliterate sin to where it doesn't exist anymore. Only the Lord can be crucified with nails that are full of the sins of man. Uh, you can't do that. But what you can do is permit that the sin that I committed against you not be the thing that defines our relationship. And what I mean by that is this, that you don't define the relationship between you and your next door neighbor by how many times he's trimmed your shrubs without asking, or how many times he didn't clean up the dandelions in his lawn and they blew into yours and started an infestation. Uh, you don't define your relationship with your fellow man by the things that they have done to harm you or to slight you or to cause you grievance. Because that's always the temptation is to, to define, have the defining characteristic of a relationship be the hatred that you have for somebody for X, Y, and Z reasons. Oh, I can't stand that person because he did this or this. Cheated me out of a car or whatever. So... Um, the idea of forgiving and forgetting is really nice and it's quaint, uh, but it doesn't work. Why? Because you're not very good at many things, but one thing that you are very good at is holding grudges. And the reason that you're so good at holding grudges is because you don't forget. I'll never forget that guy who screwed me over. Uh, and you won't. <laughs> so... Every time, you, uh, every time Brian looks at me, he's going to remember that, that one time or more I sinned against him. And that will never go away. He will always remember that. So sin is not forgetting. Or excuse me, forgiveness is not forgetting. It's something that's much greater than that, in fact. Forgiveness is uh, living as if you had forgotten not letting the sin be what defines your relationship. And living as if you had forgotten is uh, a whole lot different than forgetting. And it is a whole lot harder to do. But that is what forgiveness is on this horizontal plane. Uh, we confess to God and we confess to one, one another. I confess to God all the things that I have done wrong so that God will take the sins away from me and put them on Jesus so Jesus can get rid of them all. And then in their place, uh, I get forgiveness and grace. I'm acquitted. Uh, but then I also interact. I don't, you know, I, I don't only interact with God my entire life. I do, there are people that I interact with. It's happening right now on this horizontal plane. So then when I sin against you, I also come to you and I ask for your forgiveness and you forgive me and likewise uh, so that we can continue getting along. The, this is the bottom line um, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about community and life in the church 
which is toward the end of the class. But the fact of the matter is that not everyone is going to get along in the church. And uh, guess what? That's okay. There are always going to be clashing personalities, and that's okay. What isn't okay is acknowledging that fact and acquiescing and saying, well, I guess people aren't going to get along, so we might as well just accept that they aren't going to get along and let them argue. Let them hate each other's guts. Um, No. The thing is, we know not everybody will get along and that nobody will get along 100% of the time. But you at least pretend to. Because you live as if you had forgotten. And that's forgiveness. So, let's talk... Well, actually, first, any questions about all of this? This is all stuff I wanted to tack on at the end of last time, and we just ran out of time. Which, these next few lessons, we're going to run out of time quickly. (laughs) There's a lot to talk about. So any questions about any of that? If not, we're going to jump in to something else. Okay. Okay. Are you sure? Okay. All right, so, the effects of sin. Oh, no, I'm sorry, we can't move on because there's one more thing I wanted to give you. Oh, my goodness. There's this handout. This is a poem by, uh, I believe she was a nun named Jessica Powers. I think she was a nun. And uh, this ties in really well with the parable of the prodigal son. And this is on the handouts on the website too. For those of you who are watching this live, you can get it there on the website under the Catechumenate tab, Lesson 5. Repairer of fences is what this is called. I am alone in the dark, and I am thinking what darkness would be mine if I could see the ruin I wrought in every place I wandered, and if I could not be aware of one who follows after me. Whom do I love, O God, when I love thee? The great undoer, who has torn apart the walls I built against a human heart. The mender, who has sewn together the hedges through which I broke when I went seeking ill. The love who follows and forgives me still. Fumbler and fool that I am, With things around me of fragile, make-like souls, how I am blessed to hear behind me footsteps of a Savior. I sing to the east, I sing to the west. God is my repairer of fences, turning my paths into rest. Isn't this nice? There's so much to talk about. We could spend a whole class just on this. This is great. But this is what I want you to focus on. Fumbler and fool that I am. Who does that sound like? Fumbler and fool. Think about last time. Yes! It sounds like Pooh Bear! Fumbler and fool that I am. Well, I'm just a bear of no brains at all. Fumbler and fool that I am. My head's all full of fluff. Yes, yes. See how everything ties together? Fumbler and fool that I am. That's you. You bumble around life. You're a fumbler. You're a fool. You break through hedges and you build walls where there shouldn't be walls. And then you look around and... You can't even see all the harm that you've done. 
but somebody comes up after you, the Lord kind of follows you around with a broom and a dustpan. He says, well, just sit yourself down. I'll clean this up. Let me tear down these walls. Let me fix these fences. Let me sew back these hedges together. Don't, don't, don't go this way. Follow me. I'll take you a different way. This is the better way to go. This is all about confession and absolution. Uh, that when you hit that wall of guilt... You go to confession and absolution. You confess your sins unto the Lord. He hears your confession. He acquits you. You've stumbled on the way. He picks you up. He dusts you off. He feeds you a little supper. And then he says, come follow me. This is the way. And don't worry, I'll be here the next time you stumble. You give your sins to me and I'll get rid of them. That's the way it works. The sins that you give to Jesus, they don't exist anymore. Jesus destroys sin. And that's big. That's really important. Um, that's one reason why the entire life of the Christian is one of repentance and one of, then, with repentance, confession and absolution. Uh, because the sins that you give to Jesus, they don't exist anymore. So the Christian lives his entire life going around giving all of his sins to Jesus. Committing sins and giving them to Jesus. It's like the guy who spends his whole life collecting aluminum cans along the beach. Every day you're out there collecting cans and turning them in. Well, that's kind of what you guys are. You live your whole life accruing these sins and then giving them to the Lord and He just blasts them for you. And it's kind of nice, okay? Now, sin. Let's talk a little bit about sin. Because we use this word a lot and we don't really talk about what it is. Um... Sin is evil death. Anyone who is enslaved to sin uh, suffers an evil death. So when we pray in the litany, uh, protect us from sudden and evil death, this is one of the things that we're praying about. A death that, is, um, that takes place within sin's grasp. So, uh, and who is the person who is enslaved to sin? That's the big question. Well, what does Jesus say about it? Do you remember? There's one really important thing Jesus says about sin and slaves. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You are all slaves of sin because you commit sin. And when you commit sin, you are touching evil, giving incarnation to evil. So let's look at a few things here. We'll first look at Proverbs, chapter 11. Proverbs eleven nineteen. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Sin is always going to lead you to death. And not just any death, but evil death. The consequence for sin is always death. This is midweek. This is what we talk about all the time in midweek. The consequences for sin is always death. Why do you think the Old Testament is such a bloody book? Why are there so many sacrifices? Why does there have to be atonement all the time? Because of sin. Because the consequences of sin are always death. The wages of sin is death. When you work sin, 
you reap what you sow, you get paid the wage that you have earned, which is you get to die. That's the point. So, Second Chronicles. Now, we're going back. Second Chronicles 7.14. And maybe somebody can find 1 John 1, 8-9. Because that's where we're going next. Whoops. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And First John, did somebody... First John 1, 8 to 9. Mm-hmm. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Mm-hmm. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes. Good. Uh, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you say you have no sin, you deceive, our, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. You cannot say that you don't have any sin in you. Well, your sin, uh, in some ways, is your defining characteristic. <laughs> because uh, you're so full of it. So, so, so full of it. And it makes, this is part of what makes the Christian life so difficult, is that you are aware of this sin now. Remember, in baptism, your eyes are opened and now you see yourself for who you are, which is another reason why we continue to go to confession and absolution, why every service you confess your sins right there at the beginning. So, um, the heart of flesh always wars against the regenerate heart of the spirit. If you are born of flesh, you will continue to sin. So, here's this little handout. And this is also on the website. Two, three, four, five. This is just a little bit of humor for you. Some two of those need to be passed to your parents. Okay. Now look here, this is a difficult decision. In times like this, you have to learn to trust your heart. Trust your heart, sweetie. What great advice. Just trust your heart. Okay, heart, what's it going to be? It's going to be sin. You see this? You can't rely on what your heart's going to tell you because your heart's only going to ever tell you this one thing. Yes, yes. All right, you want my opinion on the matter? Okay, hmm. All right. Sin, Romans chapter 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. There it is. You have the will. You know what good you want to do and you want to strive to that. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. That's the very thing that I do. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And conversely, if you do what is good, it is not you who does what is good, but it is Christ in you. All the good that you are permitted to give and to receive is the work of Christ. This is the the most 
important refrain of every single one of these lessons throughout this entire class, and really the rest of your life. It's not about you. I cannot emphasize to you enough how little it is about, it is about you. It isn't. Don't read the Bible and think that it's going to be all about you. Don't look at David and Goliath and say, well, you know what, I sure am glad to be David. They're fighting off all my Goliaths. It's not about you. If you want to talk about David and Goliath, I'll tell you where you are in that story. You're cowering on the sidelines with the rest of the Israelites who are too afraid to go fight Goliath of Gath. That's where you are. Take somebody else to come in and save you. That's who David is. It's not about you. It's always about Christ and Him for you. I guarantee you, you start reading the Bible with that mentality that it's not about me, it's about Christ for me, and everything takes on an entirely new and different uh, tone. And one that is much more comforting, because it isn't about you. Why? Because your heart is like this one. Eh, if it's left to its own devices, it's not going to do so well. Okay? So sin. Sin is pride. Why? Uh, what is pride? Pride is the desire to make yourself like God, to be equal to God. Not necessarily to replace Him, but to say you could probably do a better job than God. I think I know maybe a little bit more God. I think I know what I want. I think I could probably take care of myself better than you could. I don't really know that what you think is in my best interest is. Uh, who does that sound like? The prodigal son. Eh, Dad, you're dead to me. I think I can do better out in a different land all by myself. Sin is pride. Sin is also rebellion against God. When God says, yes, you say, no. When God says, do this, you say, eh, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. When God says, don't do this, you say, yeah, you know what? That's, I think, what I want to do. <laughs> That's sin. Rebellion against God's word. Ultimately, pride because it's you saying, I think I'm going to be the boss of my own self, thank you. I think I'm, I'm going to be independent. And the problem is Christianity is not about being independent. Christianity is about being dependent, holy. If it isn't about you and if it's about somebody else for you, then that means that you are a dependent your entire life. You are a child your entire life. There's a reason Jesus talks about having childlike faith. Does the child hate having its diapers changed? Does the child try to change their own diapers? No, they're happy to tell you it's time to change that diaper and they're happy to just lay there and let you do it all for them. Well, that's the way you need to be. Now stop fighting and let God change your diaper dog on it. You see? Don't let pride get in the way. Jesus says, hey, follow me. Well, just say yes. Amen. The voice of faith. Faith, one word, it does what? It agrees. These are the things to remember. This is why it's so simple. Faith agrees. If Jesus says jump, you jump. If Jesus says don't jump, you don't jump. Faith agrees with what Jesus says and it goes where he is and it follows him. Okay? Um, so then, sin, if faith is agreeing and sin is pride and rebellion, in one word, what, could, what can we call sin then? Faith agrees. Sin disagrees. disagrees. Correct. Sin is disagreement. Sin is saying no when God says yes. Sin is holding back when Christ says come here. Sin is disagreement, pride, rebellion, okay? That's what it is. Now, there's also a thing called original sin, which is different. Sin is a broad term. Original sin is a specific term. Uh, original sin is a condition. It's like a disease that you have. 
and you can't really ever get rid of it. It's the worst disease that lives on this planet. Worse than cancer, worse than anything. Original sin is your condition. Uh, the sin of Adam and consequently the fall of creation is still the sin that you bear. You were in the flesh of your father and from the flesh of your father you have come. You bear the sin of your father. Original sin, your natural inclination to do wickedness. The way that your heart is, this blackened, twisted lump of charcoal that is your human heart, this is the way it is because of its disease. Why do we talk about an old Adam? The old Adam in you. That's kind of a, an illustration of original sin. When we, in baptism, in the catechism, when we talk about the old Adam dying, that's the old self. That's original sin. My desire for all this that is wicked. Okay. Now, there's original sin and there's actual sin. Original sin is your condition, and actual sin is something that is an actual sin, something that you do. Um, a manifest sin is a, the, the other way of looking at it. Well, well, sure, sin is pride and rebellion against God, but how does it manifest itself? What does it look like? What does rebellion against God look like? What does disagreeing with God look like? Well, how about stealing? How about adultery? How about lust and envy and hatred and scorn? That's, those are all things that it looks like. Actual manifest sins. And you can commit those in thought and in word and in deed, which is why we confess generally that we have sinned against God in thought and in word and in deed. Uh, which is basically to say that I sin by doing something, I sin by thinking something, and I sin by saying something. So that's basically basically covers all of the bases of things that you could possibly do. Well, I didn't steal. I didn't steal the thing. No, but you thought about it, and that's a sin too. <laughs> because you always want to try and get yourself off the hook, don't you? Well, you know, but I didn't really do it. I only thought about it, but then I turned back at the last minute. Ah, but thinking about it is just as bad. See, there's a hierarchy of sin for man, but not for God, because any time you rebel against God or turn away from Him. It's all the same. It's all disagreement, even if it's up in here or if it's manifest in the works. No, because you're not supposed to be thinking it either. <laughs> Doing it just because you thought it doesn't make it any better. Okay. It just, in fact, complicates things in the, in the world here. Cause, yeah, then you've got other things that you deal with. Because the courts will say, well, it's okay, that it, good on you that you thought about it but didn't do it. But then if you did do it, well, then it's, you're, it's a whole other beast you're dealing with. They're equal. They're equal. Okay? So there's, there's things called venial sins. Um, if you pay attention to the Roman Catholics, they often will talk about mortal and venial sins. The, the, at the end of the day, every sin is a mortal sin. Because every sin is something that harms you and uh, is bad for you. Okay? So that's not what that means, really. Here's really the distinction. A venial sin is a sin that you can say you recover from easily. 
Something that you do and you say, oh, shoot, Brian, I'm really sorry that I called you that name or that I picked on you in Bible class. Well, in front of everybody. That was mean of me. I'm sorry. That's a venial sin. Something we can, we can easily move past from something I, uh, I, as a Christian who has committed a sin, can recover from pretty easily. Um, sins also that grieve you. Oh, I feel so bad that I did that. Um, this is where mortal sins become a problem because venial sins will grieve you. Yes, oh shoot, I feel really guilty about that. Um, if a sin ever does not make you feel bad, if a sin ever causes you to f- look at it with indifference, eh, whatever, that's a trouble. Okay? A venial sin, you can easily, it's something that you easily recover from. It's something that you very easily feel guilty about, something that you turn away from quickly um, with true contrition and true repentance. You don't need mom and dad to say, no, apologize like you really mean it, because when you do apologize, you actually really mean it. But a a mortal sin is something that you don't easily recover from. Uh, A few examples of that are addictions. Um, And I'm not talking about just uh, something uh, of the flesh like alcoholism or a drug addiction or something like that. I'm talking about even something like uh, an addiction to pornography, sexual immorality, addictions like that that sometimes you really want to turn away from and other times you don't. Sometimes you kind of feel guilty about, other times you don't. And something that creates a dependence to where you think I couldn't possibly give this up because I need it. And everybody has a sin like that, some kind of a a repetitive thing, that monkey that you just can't shock. Uh, So you... um, these mortal sins are dangerous. They're bad for you. Very, very bad for you. They're, not, they're things that are difficult to recover from. They're things that are pervasive and that continue coming back. And things that either do or have the potential to uh, cause you to commit them with absolutely no guilt whatsoever. The, the worst sins are the ones that you commit and don't think anything about. Don't have any guilt or remorse for. That's bad. Uh, the sins that you can say, you know, I think I might actually rather burn in hell than repent of that sin. Uh, that's maybe an extreme example, but you know, in terms of, say, something like the Eucharist, uh, there's this attitude that says, well, I shouldn't go up to communion if I have any sin against my neighbor. Maybe you were even taught that. I don't know. If I have any kind of an ill will toward my neighbor, if I've sinned against him in any way, then I'll just refrain from going up there, and I'll just feel guilty about it and go talk to him later and then go to communion the next time. Well, the problem with that is going up to the altar is the very place where you're going to learn to love the person that you hate. Going up to the altar is the very place where you're going to receive the forgiveness that you so desperately need um, and that's going to strengthen you and transform you to go and make amends with your neighbor. So that's not a time to stay away. However, the time to stay away is when you say, I'd rather that I burn in hell than go and apologize to him. I'm going to wait for him to come. I'm I'm done with this. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to go to communion. You know, and he's going, he come he comes to me. I'm not going to apologize for. I didn't do anything wrong. That kind of an attitude. I'd rather burn in hell than than stoop down to that level and apologize. So that kind of mentality is bad. That's mortal sins. That's what we um, why the term mortal sin is ascribed to them because they are. It's not that they're any worse uh, than venial sins. But it, they're a whole lot worse for you. Okay, so Martin Chemnitz, who was a Lutheran theologian uh, of the, I think, late, or maybe mid to late 17th century, 
He wrote, mortal sin and venial sin are distinguished from each other, not on the basis of the substance of the deed involved or according to some difference in the sin committed, which is to say that thinking about stealing a packet of gum and uh, stealing somebody's car are the same sin. So one, we would, one, somebody might say, well, that's a really little sin, so we'll call it a venial sin, but that other one's a really big one, so we'll call it a mortal sin. No, the, substantially they're the same sin because they're both disagreement with God. Um, so we don't label them that way because the sins are somehow different, but on the basis of the person, of the difference of those who commit the sin. So um, in that sense then, you know, back to something like pornography when somebody keeps returning to that again and again and again. It's not that the sin itself is any better or worse than other sins, but it's, the, it's its effect on the person who continues to commit them and who slowly continues to touch evil and be torn away from what is good and incarnate evil in themselves. Uh, make evil manifest to the point that it's a requirement for their living and something they don't feel bad about. That's, it, it's all in the person who commits the sin. When sin is the thing that you need, that you can't live without, that's the time when sin really for you becomes a mortal sin because it's conquering you. That is really the time when you are a slave to sin and that is really the time when you are slowly dying an evil death because you've attached yourself to sin and you haven't given it up which is really what private confession and absolution is. Well, excuse me, what confession and absolution is all about is giving your sins to Jesus. Remember, repentance is turning away. This idea not just of feeling sorry for your sins, that's the contrition part, but also the repentance part, which is putting it behind you, walking, walking away, throwing that sin into the dumpster and setting it on fire and walking and not looking back. That's what repentance is, which is much more difficult. That's why your entire life is a life of repentance, because your entire life is turning away from things and continuing to go back to where Christ is. Okay? So then, what is the chief sin? This is kind of a trick question. The only unforgivable sin... We'll say it like that. You can say it's the sin against the Holy Spirit, right? Which is? I was going to say rejecting God. Sure, yeah, unbelief, rejecting God. But there's a deeper meaning to why that is the only unforgivable sin. Can you think about what it is in light of what we've been talking about here? Why would that be the only unforgivable sin? Rejection of God, turning away from Him. Why is that unforgivable? Because the very nature of you turning away and rejecting is you not giving sins to Jesus. The chief sin is the one that you don't give to Jesus. The only unforgivable sin is the sin that Jesus doesn't have to obliterate. Does that make sense? So rejection is really taking your sins on yourself and saying, I don't need the Lord's help. I'll handle these myself. And when Judgment Day comes, you're going to realize you're not able to handle those yourself. And then they are not forgivable because you refused to receive the forgiveness that was offered for them. You rejected it. You threw it away. You said, I'll do it myself. And they said, the Lord says, okay, you do it yourself. And on the last day, he says, well, you said you were going to do this yourself. So here's, here's what happens. 
Okay? This is why confession and absolution is so important. This is why Luther urges his Christians to go to confession and absolution. This is why you don't live in the freedom of the gospel apart from the life of faith. You don't get to say, well, I'm free in the gospel to do the things that I want to do, so I think I'm going to just never confess my sins because that's going to be okay for me. It's not going to be okay for you. Why do you think every single Sunday it begins with confession and absolution? Because this is a really important aspect of your life. Giving your sins to Jesus, getting rid of them. You don't want they're not worth holding on to. Yourself is kind of like a hoarder house. None of that stuff that you think is in there is worth holding on to. Jesus has pulled a dumpster out back. <laughs> and he, he's he's right there and he wants to help you throw it all away and get stuff a little cleaner and, and neat inside. Don't, don't take it on yourself. Give, the, give your sins up to Jesus. Jesus will get rid of them. And in, its pla- and in their place, he'll give you something that's much better and much better for you. Hey, does this make sense? Uh, oh, excuse me. That's Freudian. Does this make sense? <laughs> does this make sense to you? Give your sins to Jesus. That's, th- this, listen, the, the pastor friend that I actually took the idea of the catechumenate from and the catechumenate is an old class really but the way that he teaches it and how I learned it from him and I've sort of adapted it my own way but his PhD dissertation was the gospel in five words or less he says if you can't explain theological terms in five words or less you're thinking too hard and I agree with that Theology doesn't have to be complicated, and it shouldn't be complicated. Yes. Um, can I go in the sanctuary? Yes. Yes. Do you know where the lights are? Yeah, I wasn't sure. There was a sign. I was like, oh no, maybe I should. Oh no, no, no! Don't worry about that. I'm in here. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Um, yeah. If you theology doesn't have to be complicated, and in fact, it isn't complicated. It's really quite simple. Theologians and and uh, academics and pastors. Uh, they tend to make it more complicated than it really is. But the gospel in five words or less, that's, this whole, this, that's really the whole point of this class, is to teach you the faith in, in a way that you can really understand and hold fast to, things that are really simple. Faith is what? It's agreement. Sin is what? Disagreement. Justification is what? Being forgiven. Sanctification is what? Living forgiven. The gospel is what? The touch of Jesus. Confession and absolution is what? Giving your sins to Jesus. Do you see how easy this is? Now, it's a whole lot harder to live this way, but it's a whole lot easier to understand the way that you're supposed to live and the Christian faith and life when you look at it and boil it down to the very, 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 very most basic fundamental levels. And you can't really build on it until you've boiled it down to this level. This is confession and absolution, giving your sins to Jesus. Every time you come in to confess, it's giving your sins to Jesus. Okay? So, this is, the, this is something to keep in mind. Touching evil in, um, incarnates evil. And touching holy things incarnates the holy. Uh, why 
Do you think the Spirit is always driving you towards the holy things of God, driving you to the places where Christ is for you, where his touch is, in the preaching of the gospel, in the hands of absolution, in the body and blood at the altar, in the waters of the baptismal font? All of this stuff. Why do you think the Spirit's always driving you to wherever Jesus is? Because that's the stuff that's really good for you. Because that's the stuff that manifests holiness and goodness. That's the stuff that really works on you and transforms you for good. The other stuff's bad. Why do you think all of the Bible is about running away from evil and only touching things that are good? Because touching bad things incarnates evil. You know, you think about demonic possession, and if you watch too many horror movies, you think that it's, well, I opened a box I wasn't supposed to open, or I went into this house I wasn't supposed to go in, and all of a sudden something's in me. But that's not the way it works. You incarnate evil in yourself by touching the things that are evil. They entice you over and then, then you involve yourself with them. And slowly, as you walk over and start to touch the things that are evil, that handcuff gets around your wrist and all of a sudden you're shackled to the thing that you ought not to be shackled to. And then another and another. And then you're trying to walk and you're weighed down by all of these things that are holding you there, all of this evil that you can't get rid of. So you give it to the Lord because he is the great breaker of chains. He, is, he has come to set his people free from the bondage of sin and the devil. Slavery is a big theme in the Bible, not just because of historical uh, events, but because of the theological significance of being a slave to sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Don't touch evil things, touch what is good. Jesus says don't sin, not because he wants to be wicked, not because he wants to make sure that you never have a good time, but because it's bad for you. That's the way Jesus interacts with you. He doesn't want you to touch what's bad for you. He only wants you to have what's good for you. That's the way parents are, or at least ought to be. Listen, I don't set rules that are arbitrary. I set rules for you because they'll help you see what's good for you. They'll give you what's good for you. Don't drink bleach under the kitchen cabinet. Oh, well, rats, that would be really fun, wouldn't it? I don't know. Maybe it would be. I don't really think it would be. Maybe you think that would be fun, but it wouldn't be good for you. There's a lot of stuff that's fun that isn't good for you. Drinking bleach is one of those things. Putting your nose in a meat slicer is one of those things. I'm going to tell you not to do those things because they're bad for you. And Jesus is going to tell you not to sin only because sin is bad for you. And he only wants what is good for you. Okay? Uh, So Jesus doesn't want you to die. That's the bottom line. Jesus doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live. So don't submit to evil. Instead, you want evil to be cast out. So give your sins to Jesus. Don't hold on to them. Give them to Jesus. Um, And remember this. All the commandments of God are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. St. Augustine wrote that. Let me say it again so that you're sure to hear it. All of the commandments of God are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. How can you be acquitted even if you're guilty? Because if Jesus destroys all your sins, there's nothing that they can charge you with. Do you see that? When you come and and you confess your sins, you give them up, and you receive holy absolution, when the Lord forgives you your sins, he acquits you. There's nothing that anybody can do to charge you because the sin that they're trying to charge you with doesn't even exist. You can't be held guilty for something that doesn't even exist. So you give your sins to Jesus and he obliterates them. They don't don't exist anymore. 
And then you say with St. Bernard, let the memory of my sins be so terrible to me that I never commit them again. That I see what they did to me, and in thanksgiving for the Lord wiping them away, I live a life of repentance where I turn away from them and walk the other way. Okay? So that's, prob- that's where we're going to stop here, um, because I don't have time to get into anything else. So, um, any questions? Let me just... This is my wife's phone, so I can't just unlock it with my fingerprint. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah, so this is where we'll end. We will um, we'll continue with some more confession and absolution next time.